Last week we talked about how God intends for us to be better people. But it raises a question, how is it that we pursue change in our lives? How is it that we can become better people? Well, we're in luck because the Apostle Paul talked about this topic often with advice that we're going to look at today that I think will help us understand how that process takes place. Now, just so you know and to remind you, we're in a series called A Faith That Works When Life Doesn't, and it's based on the life and teachings of St. Paul. Paul lived a challenging life, and yet in the midst of difficulties, he developed a vision for life that has inspired countless thousands over the centuries. Paul had a firm conviction in God, a firm confidence in him, and a belief that even through hardship, God can make us into better, stronger people. The first of Paul's ideas about change is his conviction that a changed life requires a changed heart. A changed life requires a changed heart. This topic shows up in Colossians chapter 1, or 3, verse 1, when he says, Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your hearts on things above. A common criticism of Christians is that they're so heavenly-minded they're of no earthly good. So set your hearts on things above seems like encouragement a sort of, to a sort of spiritual absent-mindedness that would leave us out of touch with the rest of the world. And I've known people, and perhaps you have as well, who are proud of being out of touch. So if you happen to mention The Bachelor or Avengers or Kim Kardashian, they look at you as if you're talking about an obscure medieval French king. So is Paul telling us to unplug and isolate? to delete our social media accounts and cancel our Netflix subscriptions? Well, as we'll see later, there are times when that might be necessary. But I don't think that's the point Paul's talking about here. So what is it he's talking about? Well, first we need to acknowledge the context. And that is that Paul starts by saying, since then you've been raised with Christ. Now, not all of you watching would consider yourselves Christians. And you may be just checking Jesus out, which is great. And if we can be of help to you, let us know. But the reason I'm even mentioning it here is that Paul does make the assumption up front that those who are reading what he's writing here are Christians. Paul doesn't always make that assumption, but he does here. So when he says, since you've been raised with Christ, he's using shorthand to describe someone who has put their faith in Jesus, in his life, his death, and his resurrection from the dead. Now, if that's not you, I just encourage you not to turn this off because I think what I'm going to share will still be of help to you. And along the way, it may help you understand more of what the Christian faith is all about. But back to Paul. He says, if you're a Christian, set your hearts on things above. Now, the word set here means literally to seek. And so what he's talking about is our responsibility to intentionally seek change in our lives. And the word heart is important because in the Bible, the heart is a metaphor for the, our inner lives, the source of our emotion, our intellect, and our wills. So the kind of change Paul's talking about is not superficial, but it is something deep and comprehensive. And our hearts, who we are at the core of our being, he says, needs to be set on things above. Now, the things above statement can be confusing, and some of that is because of our tendency to think of heaven as a physical place somewhere up above. So if Seattle's out west and Boston's back east, then heaven is up above. Now, it's true that the Bible does use the, the idea of heaven being above, but it's not intended to describe a literal place somewhere in the Milky Way. Instead, it's a metaphor for the place where God is, where God's in charge, where God's will is done, and everything works the way that it's supposed to. 
But there's more, much more to it. Because Paul is not talking here about heaven as a destination. Rather, he's talking about the values of heaven. To set our hearts on things above is to no longer be primarily occupied with the temporary things of this world. It's to set our hearts on God and his will. It's to have an above perspective and to see things the way that God sees them and to care about the things that God cares about. An above perspective helps us determine our priorities. It helps us make better decisions, to use our time well, and to learn how to think Christianly about the big questions of life. In other words, to set your hearts on things above isn't to withdraw and do nothing but contemplate eternity. Instead, it's to engage and in, in the process, viewing everything from the perspective of eternity. To no longer live as, this, as if this world were all that mattered. After saying, set your hearts on things above, in verse 2, Paul says this, and your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Now, you may have immediately noticed the difference between verse 1 and verse 2 is that in verse 1, he mentions hearts, and in verse 2, he mentions minds. Is that significant? It is, and in a moment we'll come back to that in a different place of Paul's writings to describe what is the importance there. But what I want to point out here is the important contrast he makes between the things above, which he mentions in both verse 1 and 2, and in verse 2, earthly things. What's he talking about? Well, it's actually more complicated than you might think, but let me give you the Cliff Notes version. In the ancient world, many of the philosophers believed that the physical world was bad and the spiritual world was good. But Paul disagreed. In fact, if he were here today, he wouldn't say that the things of this life, whether it's books or music or movies or sports or hobbies, are entirely bad. And he also wouldn't say that all spiritual things, whether it's going to church or religious books, are necessarily good. To Paul, the difference between good and bad is whether or not they reflected the values of the kingdom of God. So a great book, even if it doesn't have explicitly religious content, can be good. And likewise, not everything said in the name of religion is necessarily reflects God's kingdom. Jesus wants us to live by a different set of values, to pursue righteousness, justice, and peace, to see people the way God sees them, to treat them the way that God treats us, and to love them the way that God loves us. It's not to give in to the pressure to be like everyone else around us. So to set your hearts on things above, not on earthly things, is to be worldly in the best sense of the word. It means seeing the world around us for what it is, a place not to invest all of our energy and affections, but to see the good in the world as something that are gifts from God, and yet not let them take the center place in our lives and replace God at the center of our hearts. Our lives should honor God. Our actions should make him look good. And the goal of our lives should be to see his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Again, that doesn't mean to withdraw or isolate. Instead, we have a new set of values and passions. Things we once thought were important we no longer care about. And so we care more about giving rather than getting, about serving over ruling, about forgiving over avenging. These things require a changed heart. But change requires more than just a changed heart. It also requires a different kind of mind. Now, I've already read Colossians 3.2 where he says we should set our minds on things above. So what exactly is he getting at and what is it that we're to set our minds on? Well, fortunately, in Philippians 4.8, Paul mentions some of the kinds of things that we need to have our minds filled with, the kinds of things we ought to be thinking about. Here's what he says. Finally, brothers and sisters, 
whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. What we think about affects our entire lives. That's why we need a new way of thinking. That means we ought to pay close attention to the things that occupy our thoughts. And then Paul gives us a suggestion, several suggestions of how we can fill our minds with the right things. If we had more time, we'd go through each one of those. Now, I would encourage you to take time later to just reflect on this one verse and pause at each one of these things he tells us to think about and reflect on what that might mean for you. After he gives this list, though, he concludes by saying, if anything is excellent, virtuous, if it's worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, doing that is harder than you might think because it runs counter to so many of the things that are around us. Much of what we read on social media and see on TV is a few facts spun in a way that deceives or sometimes even outright lies. Still more, it can be profane and vulgar and vicious and unfair. Sometimes it seems like there's a rush to the bottom to see just how low we can go. So how can we fill our minds with the things that please God? Well, let me give you two suggestions. There could be many others, but let me start with just these. And the first is to get rid of the junk. And that's hard to do. Sometimes what we need to do most is to take a good look, a close look at what's filling our minds and to do some house cleaning. It's sort of the moral equivalent of Marie Kondo. But instead of asking, does this spark joy, to ask instead, is this true or pure or lovely? And if not, get rid of it. When our daughters were young, one of their favorite programs was Arthur on PBS. Arthur and his sister DW often had a way of talking disrespectfully to one another. And we noticed over time that our daughters started to imitate that kind of speech and that kind of action. And so we decided just for a month we'd take a break from Arthur. And we saw almost immediately that their, the way they talked to each other and the way they behaved was different. Now, eventually, we let them watch Arthur again, but more limitedly, because we wanted to make certain that the things that were filling their minds were good. It can be hard to do this, because it's hard to withdraw completely from the world. In fact, we shouldn't. But I think Martin Luther makes a helpful uh, distinction when he says, you can't stop a bird from flying overhead, but you can stop it from building a nest in your hair. I think, though, we know that even though we need to get rid of the junk, it's not enough just to say no. We also need to say yes to good things. And that's why the second suggestion is important. And that is to replace the bad with good. Filling your mind with the right kinds of things will make it easier, actually, to keep out the bad. So read good books. Watch uplifting movies. Spend time with encouraging friends. And I think the most important suggestion of all is to spend some time each day with God to take 10 to 15 minutes at least to read your Bible and pray. Doing that will change your life. So to recap, a changed life requires a changed heart, a changed mind, but a changed life also requires an inside-out transformation. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul says this. He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Another way to say don't be conformed is don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. See, it's easy to go along with the flow, but it's hard to swim against the current. Instead, be transformed, he says, by the renewing of your mind. Now, the word transformed here is the Greek word morphe, or in English we say to morph. 
That's why I said a moment ago that a changed life is an inside-out transformation. So don't live unthinking, unreflective, immature lives. And don't just copy what everyone else is doing. Far too many of us are like chameleons who change their color based on their surroundings. Jesus died on the cross to take care of our sin problem because we're sinful, broken people. But he did more than just to clean up the negative sign of the ledger. He promised to change us, hearts and minds, to renew us from the inside out, to make us into the people that he destined for us to be. But we can't do it on our own. Sometimes it's tempting to give up, but don't. Ask God to help you take the next step toward change. Ask him to give a vision, a new vision for your life. And let the Spirit begin to do its transforming work in you. In the last couple of weeks, on the top of the stress of COVID-19, we have been confronted yet again with another disturbing part of our national narrative. Racism is a systemic issue that's existed for centuries. Far too often, those of us who are white have remained silent, even when we know that things aren't right. I don't want to say that to dial up the guilt, but I do want to say it to suggest that we all bear responsibility. I believe that before this is all over, we will need change in our all of the way of American life, in education, in healthcare, and housing, and of course, in policing. But we will also need a change of heart, a change of mind, and a transformation from the inside out. Jesus was once asked by one of his disciples, would you teach us to pray? And Jesus gave them a prayer that many of us have used over the centuries often, when he said, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The things above are the very things that God tells us to pray for, that Jesus tells us to pray for. And we must pray for real change in the way that the systems in our culture works. But we also need to ask God to show us the way that we need to change. The things that he wants us to change in our hearts and minds. The things that need transformation. Not ask him to change others, but to change us. To give us hearts of compassion and justice and love. That is what would please him and would be best for all of us. Amen.